0: Mercy and peace to you from him who sits on the throne our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ amen why did Jesus ascend into heaven surely we can see that he had accomplished his work to do that the father had sent him into the world to become like us in our humanity to bear a life of shame and suffering to go to the cross and atone for our sins and to rise victorious, proving that God had overcome sin, death, and the devil, why did he need to ascend into heaven? Why couldn't he have just stayed among us? Why couldn't he have had a throne here on earth? And if he needed to ascend into heaven, Why didn't he just go right from his resurrection and disappear? And we didn't need to see it all or put it into the scriptures. But it was put into the scriptures here for us. Why Jesus ascended into heaven. If you had a chance to pay any attention to the news in Great Britain or you follow the BBC, you would have heard something about the ascension of King Charles. So he had his own ascension and his coronation took place on May 6. I had a chance to watch some of that ceremony and it was quite amazing to watch the tradition being preserved. Not many places in the world today do you still have such traditions upheld except in places like the Anglican Church and in the Kingdom of Great Britain. And the two things were brought together, both the kingdom and the church. So the procession and the whole ceremony took place in an Anglican church, bringing together the king and the archbishop. The procession itself took almost 30 minutes as they ushered in special guests, heads of state, family members, They ushered them in all to their special seats of honor, and then came the royal carriage drawn by six white horses, and that took a whole other amount of time before the king actually got out, everything was ready, and the procession into the church began. It was led by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the cross. The cross led the king as he was accompanied on either side by two priests. He was led by a royal crown, which which is going to be later placed on his head. The part of the coronation that is most significant is the crowning of the king. As he walked by, the people bowed. Well, kind of. I don't think they bowed like they used to bow, but there'd be a nod of the head here and there. And there he was taken up through the part of the church, which is this golden entrance where the people stand on one side and only the priests and the king go beyond where the choir is. It's supposed to symbolize the most holy place of heaven as the king enters that part and is seated on a wooden throne, an old, old throne that was used for kings and queens from generations past, the same one where Queen Elizabeth would have sat in her coronation 70 years ago. The liturgy that was chosen for the church had many of the same readings that we had today. Colossians chapter 1, Luke chapter 4. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says. There was a whole liturgy of his coronation that included him swearing an oath. Where the king would put his hand in a Bible and swear. To maintain the laws of God. And the Protestant Reformed religion, established by law and doctrine and worship and discipline. And to preserve the true profession of the gospel. And at the end, the king says, I am a faithful Protestant. Now, some of us listening on, if you hadn't paid any attention to this before, might be kind of shocked by this partnership between the king and the church. But this goes way, way back in the history of Britain. In fact, part of the ceremony wasn't even allowed to be seen. They took the king for his anointing and covered him with these walls that they moved in and put up around him, and no one could actually see the anointing taking place. Followed by the anointing, he was seated on the throne. And in one hand, he was given a sword. In another hand, he was given a a golden orb, symbolizing both the might of his kingdom and the sword, and also his message of the gospel in the orb, meant to to symbolize the whole globe with a cross on top. After it was all finished, the reading of scripture and prayers, In fact, they celebrated the Lord's Supper. He was crowned and he left with a recession of trumpets and bells. What did all of that mean? Where did it all come from? How did the church ever get involved in this whole thing about crowning the King of England? Well, it goes way, way back. In fact, it goes so far back, many people don't even know where it all began, but there was a specific time when this partnership between the church and the state was very significant in England. It was so significant that the king was said to have both the earthly authority and the divine authority as king. However, today, we know that most of this is kind of just symbolic. Really, the king today doesn't have much of any power. In 1689, British Parliament passed what was called the Mutiny Act, which said that the king could no longer raise a standing army on his own. Also, he couldn't introduce or suspend laws. And any time, once a year, Parliament has to approve the continuation of the king's standing army so at any time they can take away that power. That oath he took in 1688 was also part of this partnership to maintain the Protestant reformed religion in which the king has to swear an oath that he's a faithful Protestant. Well, this too was a little bit empty because it was King Charles III that went against the church in his divorce of Princess Diana, if you remember that far back, um, and his unfaithfulness to the one he's now married to, which is Queen Camilla. In fact, going way, way back, we know that kings often would have mistresses that lived with them and would claim to be defenders of the faith, but in their own personal lives, rarely lived up to that quality. I think the whole meaning of this service is important, because it's trying to point us to something greater in all the kingdoms of this world, the kingdom of Jesus. The fact that a king would have to bow his knee before the throne and say a prayer is something very important that we would want in any of our leaders to acknowledge there's a greater king. In our presidents, our Congress, our senators, we will want everyone bowing their knee to a greater king in Jesus. But there's one thing that they are particularly confused about and most of the world is confused about. Why did Jesus ascend into heaven? If Jesus is the greater king, and if indeed he is sanctioning a ceremony, partnering the church and the state in this divine providence, why isn't Jesus there? Why didn't he just stay and work to establish these kingdoms and these partnerships. A coronation is largely symbolic no matter what's going on in the kingdom. That's always been that way no matter who the king is because a coronation is not as important as the accession. An accession to the throne is where the king actually takes his power. And that happened for King Charles on September 8th of last year. Now, why did that happen on September 8th of last year? What happened on September 8th? The queen died. The queen died. So September 8th was the day where the king actually, they have a proclamation with all of parliament present where the king is said to take his authority and he signs some papers. Now the accession is where the king actually takes power not the coronation. The coronation is the public acknowledgement, the swearing of oaths and allegiances publicly to what's already happened privately almost a half a year ago. But what's confused in the world's eyes is what the accession and coronation mean in the life of Jesus. When you look at the life of Jesus, do you see pomp? And regalia? Do you hear trumpets? Do you see people bowing their knees with no choice? Do you see a grand throne or a grand crown? Instead what we see is Jesus anointed by the Holy Spirit in the waters of the dirty Jordan River. We see him driven out into the wilderness to be tempted Tried to suffer in his weakness. We see him largely rejected, often shamed and disgraced and cast out. We see him crowned not with gold, but with thorns. We see him on a cross, the worst of all shame and humiliation and suffering that this world has ever invented. He was despised and rejected. And the people shouted, we have no king but Caesar. The world does not understand the meaning of Christ's kingdom. What the king of England, I believe, does not understand is the kingdom does not come with power. What our own leaders don't understand in Congress and Senate What our presidents often don't understand is that the kingdom does not come by strength or might, but by the Spirit of our God. And when the Spirit comes, he comes in humility, clothed in poverty and suffering. When Jesus comes, he is hidden in lowly places. And so the king that we worship today on the day of our Lord's Ascension is not one which received a grand ceremony, but we are here to proclaim his coronation. Why Jesus ascended into heaven. I heard this quote about Jesus' Ascension. The Ascension is the reverse of the Incarnation. In the Incarnation, God and man are joined on humanity's home turf. In the ascension, God and humanity are joined on God's home turf. In other words, in the incarnation, God became man on earth, and in the ascension, man returned to God in heaven, which means that after Jesus had fulfilled his life on earth to do everything that we had to do, God was among us, In suffering, God was experiencing all the things that we experience. God was even willing to take on himself the punishment for our sins. And that is our king. And in his human form, then, he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven so that man and God could take the throne and continue to rule on God's turf hidden away from our sight, and yet doing amazing things that the world will never know. Jesus ascended into heaven, not in just a meaningless symbolic act. The going away of Jesus was not just to show us he was gone up into heaven, but to show us that he's going into hidden places where he continues to rule on his throne. The ascension into heaven was Jesus' coronation. And like I said, Jesus uh, kings have the ascension, the accession, and the ascension. Jesus, as a king, was anointed first by the Holy Spirit to live his life as our king in all poverty and humility. And then the coronation is the public acknowledgement that he has taken his power, he's taken his throne, And because the world doesn't see it, it's up to us to proclaim it. It's up to us to live it. And unlike those heads of state, family members that might bow a nod to Charles because they have other opinions, we completely bow our knee. We prostrate ourselves before the Lord every Sunday. And this worship service every Sunday is a declaration of our king the one who holds the orb in his hand, the victory of the cross for all the world. And so we read Psalm chapter two. Psalm chapter two is the Lord's anointed. It is the inauguration of the king into his throne. Why do the nation's rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So the world fights against this kingdom. It fights against the idea that someone would be in charge of you. That someone would be higher up than any person in this world and would tell you what to do. That this person who is in charge of you would also come in such humility and suffering and call you to do the same is not the path of the world's kingdoms. And so they say, let us break the chains away. Let us be free of this rule. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. He's not laughing because it's funny. He's laughing because it's futile. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Zion in the Old Testament was the place for Israel's king. It was the hill and mountain of Jerusalem where the temple was found and where the king's palace was found. But we know that that city and that temple was destroyed. And Zion in the Old Testament prophecies always meant something greater than any physical place. It was the place of God's people. Zion was the place where God would dwell whether he had a grand palace or a lowly manger. Zion is the place where God continues to dwell among people like you who sit on wooden pews and listen to a pastor every Sunday tell you about this king. Zion is the place where God has set his king, and I will tell of the decree, the writer says. He will announce the proclamation. And you can almost hear the trumpets sounding in heaven. The grand procession. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. They're announcing that Jesus is the king. The proclamation that he is God's own son, begotten of the father from eternity and now anointed and crowned king. Ask of me, and I will give the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Now that Jesus sits on the throne, God gives him the inheritance of all the nations of this world, the nation of Great Britain and the nation of the United States of America. They all belong to Jesus. And every ruler that should take power, whether it's in a democracy or a monarchy, is under him. Everyone who should rage against him, who should break away the chains and say, I'm gonna do it my way, who will lead the world into evil or allow evil to continue to exist unpunished. It says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. What matters then in the end is not whether you nod your head to the symbolic ceremony of any earthly figure, whether you are amazed or awed by some great or grand presence that you might be in. It's whether those same people will bow their head to Jesus. It's whether those same heads of state in Parliament, in the Senate, in the House of Representatives, in our local government, in Columbia, in South Carolina, whether they will bow to Jesus. And without that, they're going to be broken to pieces. And so he calls us to his kingdom. And his kingdom is a place where we take refuge in him, where we do not use war or force or violence in order to promote this cause. Instead, in all humility like Jesus, we accept suffering, we stand firm on his word, and we take refuge in him. And that is the greatest witness. And that proclaims the enthronement and coronation of our king. Amen.